You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Pastor David. Welcome to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time, if it's your 135th time, Welcome to Grace Community. I'm really glad that you're able to be here today as we worship uh, the Lord together. If you've been here for a while, you know we're in a series in 1 Corinthians. going to take a break today and next Sunday to acknowledge where we are in the calendar, the liturgical calendar, Palm Sunday and, and Easter. But when we come back, the last two sessions from 1 Corinthians 16, we'll talk about giving one Sunday. Interesting that that's come up today. We don't really talk about giving all that much. The New Testament doesn't talk about giving all that much. But when it does, it gives great motivation for why we should give. And so it won't be one of those kind of sermons, you know, about giving in a few weeks. But uh, the New Testament, when it talks, has some beautiful stuff to say. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 16, jump over to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So that and then also... Um, after that, we're going to talk about the will of God. Not that Paul says, this is how you determine the will of God, as we want him to say, it seems to be. Uh, but just the way that he understands people's movements and placement and activities and how the Lord leads in our lives. So especially if you're a student and you're going by then, I hope not, April 23rd, um, this is one time I would encourage you to make sure to listen and, and, and some about just to hear some of the thoughts about God's will for our lives. Well, as for this morning, I would ask you, as we begin our time in Matthew 22, what do you think of God? What is God like? Does he exist? And if he does, what is he like? Is he distant and brooding, or is he compassionate and loving, laughingly overlooking our shortcomings? Is he sadistic, taking pleasure in our pain and loss, or is he a fabrication of our imagination, existing only for the purposes of leaders to control others? We hope for a God of love, do we not? We all want a God of love. Yet when we look at the condition of so many and we look at our own lives, some are tempted to say, how could a God of love? And then fill in the blank. Perhaps you're even angry at a God that you claim doesn't exist. The most certain way, way to receive an answer to the question, what do you think of God, is to preface it with another question, what do you think of Jesus? It is, in fact, the question that Jesus asked of the religious leaders during Holy Week, only a few days before he was crucified. It, Holy Week began with Palm Sunday. All week long, things were happening until Thursday night. The Lord's Supper was instituted at the Passover meal. Trial, arrest, trial, crucifixion next day, and then resurrection on Sunday. Jesus' 
question to the leaders, what do you think of Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he is going to be found at the end of our lengthy text on this Palm Sunday. I wanted to preach from somewhere in the week that is not necessarily the triumphal entry. Um, Friday night, we'll be talking about the cross. If you've never been to a Friday night, uh, Good Friday service here at Grace, please come. I think you will be blessed. Seven o'clock, we'll be meeting on Friday. Today's scripture is taken from Matthew 22. It's a long one, verses 15 to 46. And it recalls three traps that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians set for Jesus. Now, they would have disagreed vehemently with the title of this message. Making sense of Jesus is making sense of God. After having the traps that they set for the Lord snap on themselves rather than on their intended victim, the Savior then asked them questions about identity. Not questions about their identity, but questions about his identity. Who do you think that the Son of Man is? And of course, he had claimed to be the Messiah all along. They knew he was talking about himself. Although the leaders did not offer an answer, and how could they answer Their understanding of who Jesus was didn't fit their narrative of the Messiah. It didn't fit the expectations that they thought the Messiah would look like because of the ways that they understood Scripture, which will have some interesting twists along the way today. Even though they didn't answer it, it needs to be answered by every one of us. Who is the Messiah And why did he come? To begin our time in the Word, we're going to read Matthew 22, 41 to 46. At the very end, they give three challenges to Jesus, and then Jesus gives a challenge back. And by starting at the end, it's kind of like the first time you watch The Sixth Sense. Actually, I've only watched it one time. How terrible is that? But you figure out what's going on, and then you say, oh, i got to watch it again. And you see what's happening Well, that's what it's like. When we come to the end, we'll make sense of it and then go back and all along the way see what happened. We're going to start with Matthew 22, verses 41 to 6. Then after we have the key, we'll go back to the beginning of the challenges that we're reading about today. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David, of course. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. 
During Passion Week, which began with Palm Sunday, there were multiple encounters between the religious leaders of Israel and Jesus. And one of the first things that Jesus did, having failed to read the seven habits of highly effective people and all of those types, he went into the temple, made a whip, and drove out the money changers. So... The leaders of the temple had set up this system where they made money off of people coming in to offer sacrifices. How do you think they felt about it? Not too good, probably. Jesus was, his actions, his comments all week long were provocative. Intentionally so. Jesus had come to earth and to Jerusalem to the people of Israel at that precise time to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And it had to happen. And so many of the things that Jesus did that week were provoking them to arrest him and put him to death. The people who should have been the first to welcome King Jesus were the ones who challenged his authority and sought to have him arrested, and ultimately they had him executed. Before it came to that, though, they hoped to discredit him, just to diminish him in the eyes of the people. Look, if we can, if we can make him look like a fool, then maybe everybody will just walk away. Many debates had already taken place before we arrived at Matthew twenty-two fifteen, 15. And although the religious leaders came out on the short end every single time, it didn't stop them. They just kept on. It's like a class of first graders trying to logically explain to why the teacher has no idea what he or she is doing. And they just kept on and on. And it wasn't quite like some teachers just finally just go... Jesus answered them, but every time they came out, losers. You'll be quite familiar with this first debate beginning in Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you're not swayed by appearances. And they could have said it just like that. Flattery. They're just setting them up. But everybody knows what their game is. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. These encounters, this was the entertainment for the day. I mean, they couldn't go to movies. Um, you know, they didn't go to plays or ball games or things. They, this was entertainment. They would have these big debates. So they would go back and forth. And Jesus' answer amazed them. This was a trap, plain and simple. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. 
who were opposed to Roman rule in Israel. They got along because they had to, but they were troublesome for the, for the Roman authorities. They were conservatives. They always had their opinion about everything. The Herodians, connected to the Herods that you see in the, in the gospel accounts, uh, ruled in Galilee by Rome's permission. They, they surely had to answer to Rome, but they had a measure of freedom. They were far more politically minded than they were religiously reminded or re- religiously minded. And so these two groups getting together, they didn't mix well. It was like oil and water, but they got together for this encounter because with their clever question, Jesus was bound to offend someone. Tom Holland has written this in his excellent historical account of the effect of Christianity on the world and especially on Western civilization called Dominion. I don't know if Tom Holland is a Christian. He's close. But I don't know that he's a believer. Probably not. But he sees the impact of the beliefs of, the, of followers of Jesus on the world. And this is what he wrote when he was talking about the church as it was just beginning to grow and expand. To repudiate a city's gods was to repudiate as well the rhythms of its civic life. You ever feel like that in our culture today? Like we are messing up the rhythms of civic life as believers. Because we don't, we just can't go along with everything that the culture is wanting to do. Holland continues, it was to imperil relations with family and friends. Had any interesting Thanksgiving dinners lately? Um, It was to show disrespect for for Caesar himself. So Jesus was now in a pickle. He, He had long ago upset the Pharisees and now... Depending on his answer, he could upset Rome. And so he was in trouble, except that he was God. There is that. And so, consequently, he knew what he was doing. Exposing their hypocrisy, Jesus asked for a coin, which should not have been brought into the temple. Now, the Herodians would have had no problem with that. But the Pharisees, who were teaming up with the Herodians, they wouldn't have ever except under extreme circumstances, brought one of these coins into the temple. Jesus said, give me a coin. Whose inscription is this? And they're like, well, duh, I mean, it's Caesar. Look, it'd be the same as if I asked you, or if I told you, that's going to cost you two Benjamin Franklins. How much am I telling you it's going to cost? 200 bucks, that's right. So Caesar's image is on The coin. On one side of the coin was his image, Tiberius Caesar, and the words Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, the inscription said Pontifex, I'm sorry, Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. This was a gospel presentation. You know, used to have these wordless books, you know, the colors. It has the colors, and you could explain the gospel. This coin was a gospel presentation. It was saying to the world, Caesar is God. 
But when Jesus asked the leaders who ought not to have brought the coin into the temple, whose image is on the coin, he was provoking them to think about whose image we reflect. Jesus affirmed paying one's taxes that are required, but he also implied that our ultimate responsibility is to the one in whose image we are made, who is God, the one true God. Jesus' response was brilliant and totally unexpected. And there's a lesson for us when we're sharing Christ with unbelievers and they present gotcha questions. Don't take the bait. The question is not about logic. Well, if this, then that. And you just are constantly explaining one thing after another. Be polite. Be thoughtful. And point to Jesus. Who can be as bold as he wants to be. In his word. If you're speaking with a religious person who is mockingly seeking to discredit the gospel, then a snarky response might be in order, but it's not going to be that often. For many who mock the Lord, the motivation is not religious per se. Many who, who refuse the Lord's words, I mean, um, they, they have an image in their mind, but it's not the Lord's image they're concerned about. It's their own image. It's their own identity. And regardless of how much or how unique they claim to be, their image is often crafted for cultural approval. And so there are going to be a lot of reasons that they might say, I can't go with that. Or I I just, well, how do you explain this then? Whereas Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of his questioners, it is our privilege to show people the consistency of a biblical social imaginary or a biblical worldview and to also point out how all worldviews are, in the end, unsustainable. All other worldviews are just unsustainable. And you can do that by asking questions and let them come to the conclusion. When the Sadducees saw that Jesus had bested the Pharisees and the Herodians. They said, step aside, boys. Let's show you how the men do this now, all right? We're going to come in here and make a difference. Now, here's what you should know about the Sadducees. They were the more progressive wing of the Jewish religious leadership. They controlled the temple. They weren't Levites, necessarily. There may have been some in there. But they controlled the temple through bribery uh, and and having made a deal with the Roman government to allow them to run the temple because the temple was the center of the nation's life. They believed only the first five books of the Bible were inspired. Nothing else really counted, just the Pentateuch. They did not believe in the resurrection of the saints, and that's why they were sad, you see, Um, Sorry, it's hokey as get out. I know, but it just helps you remember, right? It helps you remember who the Sadducees were. There's a lot more going on. They didn't believe in angels either. And there's a lot more going on in this text and I'm going to have time to talk about. But know that Jesus was hitting sensitive points in his response to them. So let's read this encounter and consider 
a few of the exchanges from this debate, beginning in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And wouldn't you know it, the second one died, and the third one, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. <laughs> but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Can I just say this about this? A lot of you um, think, I want to be with my spouse for all eternity. Well, unless it's Mormon heaven, I'm in trouble, you know, because my first wife is with the Lord already. We're, when you think about it, our concern in this area is... Like the Corinthians' concern and the Sadducees' concern about the resurrection of the body. And this is what Jesus said to him: You're wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That's a dig. Then verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. He didn't answer the way most people answered these questions. Now, although some scholars speculate that this situation truly occurred where a man had a wife and he died and then the next brother right on down, it, it, it seems absurd on the surface. I mean, it's like the questions that you get. Uh, can God make a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? Kind of a thing. I mean, just <laughs> silly questions that people ask. Now, a lot of the questions are legitimate, but some that people ask us about the Lord are truly serious. And, it's, it, and it is so that the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25 identified leverant marriage as a responsibility for men whose brothers had deceased and had a wife. This was a mercy in that day. Men died because of war, other instance, uh, other uh, uh, reasons. And a woman who was widowed without a son especially was in big trouble. She really didn't have a good way of taking care of herself. Now the law said the community's got to take care of the poor. But a widow without a son, was in big trouble. So it was a mercy. But by the first century, times had changed considerably. And uh, while there was some polygamy amongst Jews still in that time, there wasn't nearly as much as there had been in ancient times. So essentially, this was a trap, plain and simple. They were trying to trap him. Jesus scolded the... Sadducees for two reasons. First, 
They had wrongly read Exodus 3, which he said, I believe is in the Pentateuch. You, you, do you believe this part of the Bible? What are you going to do with this verse? And then secondly, much like the Corinthians, they failed to acknowledge the power of God in resurrection. Jesus' answer astonished them uh, uh, to no end. Those who were listening in were astonished by Jesus' teaching, which should encourage us not to back down from those who doubt the existence of the supernatural. They doubt the power of God. You don't. If you're a follower of Christ, you know this is true. Don't be intimidated. Of course, it's going to be uncomfortable at times. But don't be intimidated. You believe in the power of God. People need the hope of eternity that is in Jesus. And they need to know that there are people who believe this. Intelligent people. Cool people. Cool, that probably was many years ago. I don't know what you are today, but they need to know that you believe. And it might be that they come to doubt their doubting. So since we have spent so much time on this subject recently, I'm going to move on after these words from N.T. Wright's awesome work called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Here's what Wright says, quote, the biblical language of resurrection, standing up, awakening, when it emerges is simple and direct. Let me just explain this uh, first sentence. Um, the, the thought of the resurrection and, and the afterlife was not highly developed in the Old Testament. Job, Daniel, there are places in Isaiah where <clears throat> there is a, a hint of resurrection or even... Job saying, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him in the flesh in the last day. Oh, I will see him in the last day. But it wasn't highly developed until Jesus and the, and the um, apostles began to talk about what happens when we die as believers. But when it emerges in, in the Old Testament, it is simple and direct. It involves not a reconstrual of life after death, but the reversal of death itself. It's not about discovering that Sheol or the grave is not such a bad place after all or that dust will learn to be happy being dust. The language of awakening is not a new, exciting way of talking about sleep. It is a way of saying that a time will come when sleepers will sleep no more. Creation itself, celebrated throughout the Hebrew scriptures, will be reaffirmed. Remade, close quote, amen. Next challenge. After the Sadducees struck out, the Pharisees stepped up to take another swing at Jesus. This challenge might not seem to be much of an attack, but Matthew tells us plainly that it was. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer... Asked him a question to test him. Imagine that. To test him. To trap him. Teacher. Which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So again, what was the challenge? I mean, this sounds like an honest question, right? It wasn't. Apparently, this question, what is the greatest commandment in the law, was a hotly debated, passionately debated topic in the day. And again, Jesus' answer could get him into trouble, except that he was God. The Pharisees wanted to know how Jesus interpreted Scripture, which Jesus will turn on them in the next section. They, they thought of Jesus as a lawbreaker because of his, the way that he treated the Sabbath. Now, Jesus didn't break any Sabbath laws that are written in the Old Testament. But, but, but the leaders of the day had developed 33, I think it was 33 rules to add to the Old Testament laws. Just to be sure that you didn't mess with the Sabbath. Like, for instance... Um, they would say, you should not spit on the ground on the Sabbath because when you, if you do, the spit may mix with the dust and roll downhill and you will be making mud. And so that's considered work. And so think about this. When Jesus spit on the ground and made mud on the Sabbath and put it in the blind man's eyes, he was also putting it in the, in the Pharisees' eyes as well because... They were making a mockery of God's word. So they thought of Jesus as a lawbreaker. Jesus gave them more than they were looking for when he responded with two answers. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now it would have been accurate for Jesus to say that these two two. Um, categories sum up the entire Ten Commandments because they do. Love God, love your neighbor. Uh, in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to condemn these leaders as hypocrites who do not love their neighbor, which indicates that they don't love God as they should. Jesus said not only does it affirm the Ten it, the whole Old Testament can be summed up in these two. And you, when you, people think about the Old Testament... A lot of times they want to say, well, God is so harsh in the Old Testament. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what the whole Old Testament was about. Look, it's easy for us to look at others and say, well, you claim to love your neighbor, but this, this, and this. So consequently, you don't love God. As you should. And then you're really not loving people. But look, wouldn't it just be better to not worry about everybody else? But just ask the Holy Spirit to examine our own heart for pockets or, or, or for significant areas of hypocrisy. I don't know. I don't know about you. I, I, I think most every week. At some point in the week. I don't think this day in and day. I just at some point I think. Wow, you're such a hypocrite to hold somebody to a, a standard that you're not anywhere close to willing to meet yourself. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? We ought to be 
we ought to not just be another voice in the culture. We ought to be completely different. We ought to love people. We ought to surprise them by love. Charlie Williams talks about this a lot. When people expect you to come at them hard, at them hard, just love them. Let Jesus be the one. After Jesus silenced his opponents on every point, he asked them a question about scriptural interpretation. So again, verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, said, you know, I've got a question now for you about how you interpret scripture. What do you think about the Christ? Whose line does he come from? And they said, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? I'll explain why that's significant in a moment. <clears throat> Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word from that day, did any, and nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him, any more questions. So, the Messiah, everyone believed, comes from David's line. The Pharisees' expectation of the Messiah was that he would be a human descendant of David's line who would be a political liberator. Now, I read both that they expected a human. Some expected from Daniel, we'll get to Daniel this, this year, um, that that. The, the Son of Man was divine in some way, but it made their heads hurt, so they just didn't think about it too much. You probably got some issues like that, too. You're like, I just can't know. I'm just going to accept what I need to by faith. But essentially, they thought that the Messiah would come from the line of David and would thus be a human. He would be a political liberator. They refused to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, because he did not fit their expectations. They especially disliked Jesus' claims of divinity. Look, the, the Pharisees not only had an expectation of what the Messiah would look like, they had an expectation of when he would come. I've read in some places maybe two or three hundred years distant. So date setters, date setting has been going on for a long time, expecting the Lord to come to us. Um, what was it? Let's see. 67, Israel became a nation. 40 years, 07, the rapture's got to come before the way. In fact, there were 88 reasons that the rapture should come in 1988. Uh, didn't happen, so maybe 80. And, and we just go on. It, we, we're always looking for Jesus, which is the right thing to do. The only thing you can know about when he is going to come for sure is when you least expect it, Right? But the Pharisees said, you're just not at all who we expected. So Jesus challenged their thinking by asking how David could call anyone other than Yahweh his Lord. Psalm 110, almost dead center in the Bible, is so important, I think the Bible doesn't work without it. You'll have to go back to the sermons on Hebrews to understand why. Jesus is, he said, you are a, 
uh, uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's who Jesus was. It was going to work because God designed it that way. But it's that important. And Jesus says, okay, now we know that Hebrew, in Hebrew thought, it is abhorrent to think of one calling someone who is his descendant Lord. It's just unthinkable. Look, respect is a lot different 50 years ago. Those of you who grew up in the South still say ma'am and sir, right? You call Jim Aycock sir, right? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We do that because that's the way we were trained to do it. Man alive, it was so different in that day. For you to call your son in any way. I mean, Joseph. Think about Joseph when Jacob came down to Egypt. Jacob went in and blessed Pharaoh. Joseph was constantly submitting to Jacob, even though he was the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. So for, the, for David to say, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is going to be my Lord, just blew their minds. So thus the leaders should have allowed for the possibility that Jesus was God in the flesh and that God was speaking to them at that very moment. We know that they refused to believe, although they were given every reason to believe. So on this Sunday before Easter, it's the same in all churches everywhere. On the lead up to Easter, the numbers grow. Maybe because people are trying to make sense of God. Culturally, it's no longer the thing that you have to do to go to church. When it's close to Easter. Could it be that you're here on this day hoping to make sense of God? Well, My word to you is from the scripture that making sense of Jesus is Making sense of God. Look, there are a lot of voices that are passionate about their version of truth. But David, Martin Lloyd-Jones warned us, do not equate passion with truth. Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in, in, in England, in London, in the mid-20th century, said Jesus' detractors had plenty of passion, religious passion even, but time and again, Jesus' truth silenced them. And it was indeed true that this final debate shut them up for good, but it didn't change their hearts and minds. Maybe you want to believe in Jesus. If God would just prove himself to you, God, just show me that you exist and I'll believe. Jesus had an encounter similar to that in John chapter 7 where the leaders kept saying, prove to us who you are. And then we'll believe. And he said, no, no, you've got it wrong. Believe me. And then you'll know. Sooner or later, you're going to have to make a decision about Jesus. Either you believe him or you don't. And until you believe, you're never... People say, oh, I just need... To... I need to think this through. And I know, look, it's, it's timing for all of us. I get that. You have to process stuff. But it's never going to be any easier. 
if you've got objections about who Jesus was, you're just going to have to hear his claims and at some point say, I believe, help my unbelief. So the question to you today is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you refuse him and harden your heart like the Pharisees? No, you may say, wait, 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 wait. No, no. It's not that I'm, I, I've just got to think this. But you never know how your heart's going to go if you keep saying, no, I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. Or will you put your hope and trust in him? What does it mean to put your hope and trust in the Lord? I want to explain that as we transition to the Lord's table. Only a few days after these encounters with the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus ate an intimate Passover meal with his disciples at which he instituted the Lord's Supper. Allison and I got to be with Charlotte Arthur yesterday, who was just hours or days from seeing Jesus. And we all know that she's going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we read this text, and I was just saying to Charlotte, who was not fully aware, as far as I know, of everything I was saying, how much the Lord longs to be in her presence, and how he is going to delight at welcoming her into his presence. Now, Jesus, Charlotte will be in Jesus' presence because Jesus died for her sins. And as he was about to die, he longingly, lovingly wanted to be with his disciples for this Passover meal which he, in which he instituted the Lord's Supper. So let's read Luke's account found in Luke 22 beginning with verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Pharisees, the religious leaders thought of Jesus as a lawbreaker. But he had said all the way through his ministry, no one can keep the law. That's why Jesus had to come, so that the last Adam, as he is called, would keep the law perfectly, every single point. When Jesus said he would give his body and shed his blood to establish the new covenant, he meant somebody's got to pay for your sins. You're not able to do it. It will take you an eternity to do it. But I will pay for your sins. And if you believe, you will belong to me. So what about you? 
Have you confessed your sins to the Lord and asked Jesus to save you? Or do you continue to argue the point, seeking to be right about religion so that you can earn your place in heaven or at the very least earn your place in the culture? This whole week, this passion week, this holy week teaches us that Jesus is the one who earns salvation for all who will believe. If you've not put your trust in Jesus and acknowledged him as Lord, what better time than when we remember the gospel, when we receive the gospel, when we believe the gospel, when we participate in the gospel at the Lord's table. I want to ask those who are serving uh, at the table and the worship team to come forward. And I'm going to give a few instructions as they are coming. We're going to come forward today and receive the elements. You'll receive the bread and the juice at the same time. Come down the interior aisles. We'll go back up the center aisles or uh, the outside aisles. There'll be a station in front of your section. So go to that station, the one that's in front of your section. And then please take the elements with you back to your seat, and then we will partake together. If you're unable to come forward, there will be someone in the back who will serve you if you'll just uh, raise your hand. This meal is intended for believers. If you're not a believer, then right now, call out in your heart to Jesus to save you. Or just say, you know, I think I'm just going to pass on this. You, can, you don't have to come forward or you can come forward and just not <coughs> take the elements. That would be an honest thing to do and surely would appreciate that. Um, if you are a believer, a lot of people get the wrong idea about this table. They think, well, I've got this one sin that I just can't seem to get. That's not what he's talking to. He's not talking to you when he says examine yourself. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. He's talking to the people who claim to know Christ but say, I'm going to live as I jolly well please. And I'm not going to repent. Nobody can tell me to repent. Don't do that arrogantly. The Corinthians had specific issues they were dealing with. And it was mocking the poor. It was mocking the body of Christ by getting drunk. That's, that's not our issue. Look, if you've sinned this week... You're part of a really big club, <laughs> really big club. Perfect time to say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Make me more like Jesus. I'm going to give just a few moments for you to pray silently. If you need to do business with the Lord, if you need to confess sins, then do that. And then I will pray at the end. And we will receive the elements. Father, we, we thank you for your magnificent plan. Every one of us is going to be in the place that Charlotte Arthur is today. Charlotte, who has said for days, I'm going to be with the, I want to be with the Lord. I want to go. I've already had glimpses of where she's going. We have the hope not only of being with you the moment we die, but that our bodies will be resurrected, made new. 
and that we will live in eternity rejoicing and glorifying the only one whose body is not perfect because it bears the scars of the price that was paid for us. Lord, forgive us that we have failed to acknowledge you or, or to live as though you were Lord of our lives. You are, but we fail. And forgive us for our sins and thought and word and deed. Lord, we have done things we ought not to have done this week. We have said things. We have left undone things that ought to have been done. Forgive us. Thank you for the promise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as we partake at this table today, we affirm our belief in the gospel, the true gospel, the good news that Jesus died rose, ascended, sits, and he saves. Come, Lord Jesus. Give thanks. Amen. As we partake, may your hearts be united to Jesus. And as you come forward, know that this meal it's not just for individual believers. It's for the family of God. And we worship the Lord together. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.